This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris, London, UK. The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont by Robert Barr. Chapter 2 The Siamese Twin of a Bomb Thrower. The events previously related in the mystery of the five hundred diamonds led to my dismissal by the French government. It was not because I had arrested an innocent man. I had done that dozens of times before with nothing said about it. It was not because I had followed a wrong clue, or because I had failed to solve the mystery of the five hundred diamonds. Every detective follows a wrong clue now and then, and every detective fails more often than he cares to admit. No, all these things would not have shaken my position, but the newspapers were so fortunate as to find something humorous in the case, and for weeks Paris rang with laughter over my exploits and my defeat. The fact that the chief French detective had placed the most celebrated English detective into prison, and that each of them were busily sleuth-hounding a bogus clue, deliberately flung across their path by an amateur, roused all France to great hilarity. The government was furious. The Englishman was released, and I was dismissed. Since the year 1893, I have been a resident of London, when a man is, as one might say, the guest of a country, it does not become him to criticise that country. I have studied this strange people with interest, and often with astonishment, and if I now set down some of the differences between the English and the French, I trust that no note of criticism of the former will appear, even when my sympathies are entirely with the latter. These differences have sunk deeply into my mind, because— during the first years of my stay in London, my lack of understanding them was often a cause of my own failure, when I thought I had success in hand. Many a time did I come to the verge of starvation in Soho, through not appreciating the peculiar trend of mind which causes an Englishman to do inexplicable things. That is, of course, from my Gallic standpoint. For instance, an arrested man is presumed to be innocent until he is proved guilty. In England, if a murderer is caught red-handed over his victim, he is held guiltless until the judge sentences him. In France we make no such foolish assumption, and although I admit that innocent men have sometimes been punished, my experience enables me to state very emphatically that this happens not nearly so often as the public imagines. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, an innocent man can at once prove his innocence without the least difficulty. I hold it is his duty towards the State to run the very slight risk of unjust imprisonment, in order that obstacles may not be thrown in the way of the conviction of real criminals. But it is impossible to persuade an Englishman of this. Mon Dieu, I have tried it often enough. Never shall I forget the bitterness of my disappointment when I captured Fellini, the Italian anarchist, in connection with the Greenwich Park murder. At this time, it gives me no shame to confess it, I was myself living in Soho, in a state of extreme poverty. Having been employed so long by the French government, 
I had formed the absurd idea that the future depended on my getting not exactly a similar connection with Scotland Yard, but at least a subordinate position on the police force which would enable me to prove my capabilities and lead to promotion. I had no knowledge at that time of the immense income which awaited me entirely outside the government circle. Whether it is contempt for the foreigner, as has often been stated, or that native stolidity which spells complacency, the British official of any class rarely thinks it worth his while to discover the real cause of things in France, or Germany, or Russia, but plods heavily on from one mistake to another. Take, for example, those periodical outbursts of hatred against England which appear in the continental press. They create a dangerous international situation, and more than once have brought Britain to the verge of a serious war. Britain sternly spends millions in defence and preparation, whereas, if she would place in my hand half a million pounds, I would guarantee to cause Britannia to be proclaimed an angel with white wings in every European country. When I attempted to arrive at some connection with Scotland Yard, I was invariably asked for my credentials. When I proclaimed that I had been chief detective to the Republic of France, I could see that this announcement made a serious impression. But when I added that the government of France had dismissed me without credentials, recommendation, or pension, Official sympathy with officialism at once turned the tables against me. And here I may be pardoned for pointing out another portentous dissimilarity between the two lands, which I think is not at all to the credit of my countrymen. I was summarily dismissed. You may say it was because I failed, and it is true that in the case of the Queen's necklace I had undoubtedly failed. But, on the other hand, I had followed unerringly the clue which lay in my path, and although the conclusion was not in accordance with the facts, it was in accordance with logic. No, I was not dismissed because I failed. I had failed on various occasions before, as might happen to any man in any profession. I was dismissed because I made France, for the moment, the laughing-stock of Europe and America. France dismissed me because France had been laughed at. No Frenchman can endure the turning of a joke against him. But the Englishman does not appear to care in the least. So far as failure is concerned, never had any man failed so egregiously as I did with Fellini, a slippery criminal who possessed all the bravery of a Frenchman and all the subtlety of an Italian. Three times he was in my hands— twice in Paris, once in Marseille, and each time he escaped me. Yet I was not dismissed. When I say that Signor Fellini was as brave as a Frenchman, perhaps I do him a little more than justice. He was desperately afraid of one man, and that man was myself. Our last interview in France he is not likely to forget, and although he eluded me, he took good care to get into England as fast as train and boat could carry him, and never again, while I was at the head of the French detective force, did he set foot on French soil. He was an educated villain, a graduate of the University of Turin, who spoke Spanish, French, and English as well as his own language. 
and this education made him all the more dangerous when he turned his talents to crime. Now, I knew Fellini's handiwork, either in murder or in housebreaking, as well as I know my own signature on a piece of white paper, and as soon as I saw the body of the murdered man in Greenwich Park, I was certain Fellini was the murderer. The English authorities at that time looked upon me with a tolerant, good-natured contempt. Inspector Standish assumed the manner of a man placing at my disposal plenty of rope with which I might entangle myself. He appeared to think me excitable, and used soothing expressions as if I were a fractious child to be calmed, rather than a sane equal to be reasoned with. On many occasions I had the facts at my finger-ends, while he remained in a state of most complacent ignorance, and though this attitude of lowering himself to deal gently with one whom he evidently looked upon as an irresponsible lunatic was most exasperating, I nevertheless claimed great credit for having kept my temper with him. However, it turned out to be impossible for me to overcome his insular prejudice. He always supposed me to be a frivolous, volatile person, and so I was unable to prove myself of any value to him in his arduous duties. The Fellini instance was my last endeavour to win his favour. Inspector Standish appeared in his most amiable mood when I was admitted to his presence, and this in spite of the fact that all London was ringing with the Greenwich Park tragedy, while the police possessed not the faintest idea regarding the crime or its perpetrator. I judged from Inspector Standish's benevolent smile that I was somewhat excited when I spoke to him and perhaps used many gestures which seemed superfluous to a large man, whom I should describe as immovable, and who spoke slowly with no motion of the hand, as if his utterances were the condensed wisdom of the ages. "'Inspector Standish,' I cried, "'is it within your power to arrest a man on suspicion?' "'Of course it is,' he replied. "'But we must harbour the suspicion before we make the arrest.' "'Have confidence in me,' I exclaimed. "'The man who committed the Greenwich Park murder "'is an Italian named Fellini.' "'I gave the address of the exact room "'in which he was to be found, "'with cautions regarding the elusive nature of this individual. "'I said that he had been three times in my custody, "'and those three times he had slipped through my fingers. "'I have since thought that Inspector Standish "'did not credit a word I had spoken.' "'What is your proof against this Italian?' asked the inspector slowly. "'The proof is on the body of the murdered man. "'But, nevertheless, if you suddenly confront Fellini with me, "'without giving him any hint of whom he is going to meet, "'you shall have the evidence from his own lips "'before he recovers from his surprise and fright.' "'Something of my confidence must have impressed the official, "'for the order of arrest was made.' Now, during the absence of the constable sent to bring in Fellini, I explained to the inspector fully the details of my plan. Practically he did not listen to me, for his head was bent over a writing-pad, on which I thought he was taking down my remarks. But when I had finished he went on writing as before, so I saw I had flattered myself unnecessarily. More than two hours passed before the constable returned, bringing with him the trembling Italian. I swung round in front of him and cried in a menacing voice, "'Fellini, regard me. You know Valmont too well to trifle with him.' 
"'What have you to say of the murder in Greenwich Park?' "'I give you my word that the Italian collapsed, "'and would have fallen to the floor in a heap "'had not the constables upheld him with hands under each arm. "'His face became of a pasty whiteness, "'and he began to stammer his confession, "'when this incredible thing happened, "'which could not be believed in France. "'Inspector Standish held up his finger. "'One moment,' he cautioned solemnly. "'Remember that whatever you say will be used against you.' "'The quick, beady black eyes of the Italian "'shot from Standish to me and from me to Standish. "'In an instant his alert mind grasped the situation. "'Metaphorically I had been waved aside.' I was not there in any official capacity, and he saw in a moment with what an opaque intellect he had to deal. The Italian closed his mouth like a steel trap and refused to utter a word. Shortly after he was liberated, as there was no evidence against him. When at last complete proof was in the tardy hands of the British authorities, the agile Fellini was safe in the Apennine Mountains, and to-day is serving a life sentence in Italy for the assassination of a senator whose name I have forgotten. Is it any wonder that I threw up my hands in despair at finding myself among such a people? But this was in the early days, and now that I have greater experience of the English, many of my first opinions have been modified. I mention all this to explain why, in a private capacity, I often did what no English official would dare to do. A people who will send a policeman without even a pistol to protect him, to arrest a desperate criminal in the most dangerous quarter of London, cannot be comprehended by any native of France, Italy, Spain, or Germany. When I began to succeed as a private detective in London, and had accumulated money enough for my project, I determined not to be hampered by this unexplainable softness of the English toward an accused person. I therefore reconstructed my flat, and placed in the centre of it a dark room strong as any Bastille cell. It was twelve feet square, and contained no furniture except a number of shelves, a lavatory in one corner, and a pallet on the floor. It was ventilated by two flues from the centre of the ceiling in one of which operated an electric fan, which, when the room was occupied, sent the foul air up that flue, and drew down fresh air through the other. The entrance to this cell opened out from my bedroom, and the most minute inspection would have failed to reveal the door which was of massive steel, and was opened and shut by electric buttons that were partially concealed by the head of my bed. Even if they had been discovered, they would have revealed nothing, because the first turn of the button lit the electric light at the head of my bed. The second turn put it out, and this would happen as often as the button was turned to the right. But turn it three times slowly to the left, and the steel door opened. Its juncture was completely concealed by panelling. I have brought many a scoundrel to reason within the impregnable walls of that small room. Those who know the building regulations of London will wonder how it was possible for me to delude the government inspector during the erection of this section of the Bastille in the midst of the modern metropolis. It was the simplest thing in the world. Liberty of the subject is the first great rule with the English people, 
and thus many a criminal is allowed to escape. Here was I laying plans for the contravening of this first great rule, and to do so I took advantage of the second great rule of the English people, which is that property is sacred. I told the building authorities I was a rich man, with a great distrust of banks, and I wished to build in my flat a safe or strong room, in which to deposit my valuables. I built, then, such a room as may be found in every bank and many private premises of the city, and a tenant might have lived in my flat for a year and never suspected the existence of this prison. A railway engine might have screeched its whistle within it, and not a sound would have penetrated the apartments that surrounded it, unless the door were open. But besides Monsieur Eugène Valmont, dressed in elegant attire as if he were still a boulevardier of Paris, occupier of the top floor in the imperial flats, there was another Frenchman in London to whom I must introduce you, namely Professor Paul Ducharme, who occupied a squalid back room in the cheapest and most undesirable quarter of Soho. Valmont flatters himself he is not yet middle-aged, but poor Ducharme does not need his sparse grey beard to proclaim his advancing years. Valmont vaunts an air of prosperity. Ducharme wears the shabby habiliments and the shoulder-stoop of hopeless poverty. He shuffles cringingly along the street, a compatriot not to be proud of. There are so many Frenchmen anxious to give lessons in their language that merely a small living is to be picked up by any one of them. You will never see the spruce Valmont walking alongside the dejected Ducharme. Ah, you exclaim, Valmont in his prosperity has forgotten those less fortunate of his nationality. Pardon, my friends, it is not so. Behold, I proclaim to you the exquisite Valmont and the threadbare Ducharme are one and the same person. That is why they do not promenade together. And indeed, it requires no great histrionic art on my part to act the role of the miserable Ducharme, for when I first came to London I warded off starvation in this wretched room, and my hand it was that nailed to the door the painted sign, Professor Paul Ducharme, Teacher of the French Language. I never gave up the room, even when I became prosperous and moved to imperial flats, with its concealed chamber of horrors unknown to British authority. I did not give up the Soho chamber principally for this reason. Paul Ducharme, if the truth were known about him, would have been regarded as a dangerous character. Yet this was a character sometimes necessary for me to assume. He was a member of the very inner circle of the International, an anarchist of the anarchists. This malign organisation has its real headquarters in London, and we who were officials connected with the secret service of the continent have more than once cursed the complacency of the British government, which allows such a nest of vipers to exist practically unmolested. I confess that before I came to know the English people as well as I do now, I thought that this complacency was due to utter selfishness, because the anarchists never commit an outrage in England. England is the one spot on the map of Europe where an anarchist cannot be laid by the heels unless there is evidence against him that will stand the test of open court. Anarchists take advantage of this fact, and plots are hatched in London which are executed in Paris, Berlin, Petersburg, or Madrid. 
I know now that this leniency on the part of the British government does not arise from craft, but from their unexplainable devotion to their shibboleth, the liberty of the subject. Time and again France has demanded the extradition of an anarchist, always to be met with the question, Where is your proof? I know many instances where our certainty was absolute, and also cases where we possessed legal proof as well, but legal proof which, for one reason or another, we dared not use in public. Yet all this had no effect on the British authorities. They would never give up even the vilest criminal except on publicly attested legal evidence, and not even then if the crime were political. During my term of office under the French government, no part of my duties caused me more anxiety than that which pertained to the political secret societies. Of course, with a large portion of the secret service fund at my disposal, I was able to buy expert assistance, and even to get information from anarchists themselves. This latter device, however, was always more or less unreliable. I have never yet met an anarchist I could believe on oath, and when one of them offered to sell exclusive information to the police, we rarely knew whether he was merely trying to get a few francs to keep himself from starving, or whether he was giving us false particulars which would lead us into a trap. I have always regarded our dealings with nihilists, anarchists, or other secret associations for the perpetrating of murder as the most dangerous service a detective is called upon to perform. Yet it is absolutely necessary that the authorities should know what is going on in these secret conclaves. There are three methods of getting this intelligence. First, periodical raids upon the suspected, accompanied by confiscation and search of all papers found. This method is much in favour with the Russian police. I have always regarded it as largely futile, first because the anarchists are not such fools, speaking generally, as to commit their purposes to writing, and second because it leads to reprisal. Each raid is usually followed by a fresh outbreak of activity on the part of those left free. The second method is to bribe an anarchist to betray his comrades. I have never found any difficulty in getting these gentry to accept money. They are eternally in need, but I usually find the information they give in return to be either unimportant or inaccurate. There remains then the third method, which is to place a spy among them. The spy battalion is the forlorn hope of the detective service. In one year I lost three men on anarchist duty, among the victims being my most valuable helper, Henri Brisson. Poor Brisson's fate was an example of how a man may follow a perilous occupation for months with safety, and then by a slight mistake bring disaster on himself. At the last gathering Brisson attended, he received news of such immediate and fateful import that on emerging from the cellar where the gathering was held, he made directly for my residence, instead of going to his own squalid room in the Rue Falgarie. My concierge said that he arrived shortly after one o'clock in the morning, and it would seem that at this hour he could easily have made himself acquainted with the fact that he was followed. Still, as there was on his track that human panther Fellini, it is not strange poor Brisson failed to elude him. Arriving at the tall building in which my flat was then situated, Brisson rang the bell, and the concierge, as usual, in that strange state of semi-somnolence which envelops concierges during the night, pulled the looped wire at the head of his bed and unbolted the door. 
Brisson assuredly closed the huge door behind him, and yet the moment before he did so Fellini must have slipped in unnoticed to the stone-paved courtyard. If Brisson had not spoken and announced himself, the concierge would have been wide awake in an instant. If he had given a name unknown to the concierge, the same result would have ensued. As it was, he cried aloud, Brisson, whereupon the concierge of the famous chief of the French detective staff Valmont uttered, Bon, and was instantly asleep again. Now Fellini had known Brisson well, but it was under the name of Ravensky, and as an exiled Russian. Brisson had spent all his early years in Russia, and spoke the language like a native. The moment Brisson had uttered his true name, he had pronounced his own death warrant. Fellini followed him up to the first landing, my rooms were on the second floor, and there placed his sign manual on the unfortunate man, which was the swift downward stroke of a long, narrow, sharp poniard, entering the body below the shoulders and piercing the heart. The advantage presented by this terrible blow is that the victim sinks instantly in a heap at the feet of his slayer without uttering a moan. The wound left is a scarcely perceptible blue mark which rarely even bleeds. It was this mark I saw on the body of the mayor of Marseilles, and afterwards on one other in Paris besides poor Brisson. It was the mark found on the man in Greenwich Park always just below the left shoulder-blade, struck from behind. Fellini's comrades claim that there was this nobility in his action, namely, he allowed the traitor to prove himself before he struck the blow. I should be sorry to take away this poor shred of credit from Fellini's character, but the reason he followed Brisson into the courtyard was to give himself time to escape. He knew perfectly the ways of the concierge. He knew that the body would lie there until the morning, as it actually did, and that this would give him hours in which to effect his retreat, and this was the man whom British law warned not to incriminate himself. What a people! What a people! After Brisson's tragic death, I resolved to set no more valuable men on the track of the anarchists, but to place upon myself the task in my moments of relaxation. I became very much interested in the underground workings of the International. I joined the organization under the name of Paul Ducharme, a professor of advanced opinions, who because of them had been dismissed his situation in Nantes. As a matter of fact, there had been such a Paul Ducharme, who had been so dismissed, but he had drowned himself in the war at Orléans, as the records show. I adopted the precaution of getting a photograph of this foolish old man from the police in Nantes, and made myself up to resemble him. It says much for my disguise that I was recognised as the professor by a delegate from Nantes at the annual convention held in Paris, which I attended, and although we conversed for some time together, he never suspected that I was not the professor, whose fate was known to no one but the police of Orléans. I gained much credit among my comrades because of this encounter, which during its first few moments filled me with dismay, for the delegate from Nantes held me up as an example of a man well off, who had deliberately sacrificed his worldly position for the sake of principle. Shortly after this I was chosen delegate to carry a message to our comrades in London, and this delicate undertaking passed off without mishap. 
It was perhaps natural, then, that when I came to London, after my dismissal by the French government, I should assume the name and appearance of Paul Ducharme, and adopt the profession of French teacher. This profession gave me great advantages. I could be absent from my rooms for hours at a time without attracting the least attention, because a teacher goes wherever there are pupils. If any of my anarchist comrades saw me emerging shabbily from the grand imperial flats where Valmont lived, he greeted me affably, thinking I was coming from a pupil. The sumptuous flat was therefore the office in which I received my rich clients, while the squalid room in Soho was often the workshop in which the tasks entrusted to me were brought to completion. I now come to very modern days indeed, when I spent much time with the emissaries of the International. It will be remembered that the King of England made a round of visits to European capitals, the far-reaching results of which, in the interest of peace, we perhaps do not yet fully understand and appreciate. His visit to Paris was the beginning of the present Entente Cordiale, and I betray no confidence when I say that this brief official call at the French capital was the occasion of great anxiety to the government of my own country, and also of that in which I was domiciled. Anarchists are against all government, and would like to see each one destroyed, not even excepting that of Great Britain. My task in connection with the visit of King Edward to Paris was entirely unofficial. A nobleman, for whom on a previous occasion I had been so happy as to solve a little mystery which troubled him, complimented me by calling at my flat about two weeks before the King's entry into the French capital. I know I shall be pardoned if I fail to mention this nobleman's name. I gathered that the intended visit of the King met with his disapproval. He asked if I knew anything, or could discover anything, of the purposes animating the anarchist clubs of Paris, and their attitude towards the royal function, which was now the chief topic in the newspapers. I replied that within four days I would be able to submit to him a complete report on the subject. He bowed coldly and withdrew. On the evening of the fourth day I permitted myself the happiness of waiting upon his lordship at his West End London mansion. "'I have the honour to report to your lordship,' I began, "'that the anarchists of Paris are somewhat divided in their opinions regarding His Majesty's forthcoming progress through that city. A minority, contemptible in point of number, but important so far as the extremity of their opinions are concerned,' has been trying— Excuse me, interrupted the nobleman with some severity of tone. Are they going to attempt to injure the king or not? They are not, your lordship, I replied, with what I trust is my usual urbanity of manner, despite his curt interpolation. His most gracious majesty will suffer no molestation, and their reason for quiescence— Their reasons do not interest me, put in his lordship gruffly. You are sure of what you say? "'Perfectly sure, your lordship. "'No precautions need be taken? "'None in the least, your lordship.' "'Very well,' concluded the nobleman shortly. "'If you tell my secretary in the next room as you go out how much I owe you, "'he will hand you a cheque.' "'And with that I was dismissed. "'I may say that, mixing as I do with the highest in two lands, "'and meeting invariably such courtesy as I myself am always eager to bestow,' A feeling almost of resentment arose at this cavalier treatment. However, I merely bowed somewhat ceremoniously in silence, 
and availed myself of the opportunity in the next room to double my bill, which was paid without demur. Now, if this nobleman had but listened, he would have heard much that might interest an ordinary man, although I must say that during my three conversations with him his mind seemed closed to all outward impressions, save and except the grandeur of his line, which he traced back unblemished into the northern part of my own country. The king's visit had come as a surprise to the anarchists, and they did not quite know what to do about it. The Paris Reds were rather in favour of a demonstration, while London bade them in God's name to hold their hands, for, as they pointed out, England is the only refuge in which an anarchist is safe, until some particular crime can be imputed to him, and what is more, proven, up to the hilt. It will be remembered that the visit of the king to Paris passed off without incident, as did the return visit of the President to London. On the surface all was peace and good will, but under the surface seethed plot and counterplot, and behind the scenes two great governments were extremely anxious, and high officials in the secret service spent sleepless nights. As no untoward incident had happened, the vigilance of the authorities on both sides of the channel relaxed at the very moment when, if they had known their adversaries, it should have been redoubled. Always beware of the anarchist when he has been good. Look out for the reaction. It annoys him to be compelled to remain quiet when there is a grand opportunity for strutting across the world's stage, and when he misses the psychological moment, he is apt to turn nasty, as the English say. When it first became known that there was to be a royal procession through the streets of Paris, a few fanatical hotheads, both in that city and in London, wished to take action, but they were overruled by the saner members of the organisation. It must not be supposed that anarchists are a band of lunatics. There are able brains among them, and these born leaders as naturally assume control in the underground world of anarchy as would have been the case if they had devoted their talents to affairs in ordinary life. They were men whose minds at one period had taken the wrong turning. These people, although they calmed the frenzy of the extremists, nevertheless regarded the possible rapprochement between England and France with grave apprehension. If France and England became as friendly as France and Russia, might not the refuge which England had given to anarchy become a thing of the past? I may say here that my own weight as an anarchist while attending these meetings in disguise under the name of Paul Ducharme was invariably thrown in to help the cause of moderation. My role, of course, was not to talk too much, not to make myself prominent, yet in such a gathering a man cannot remain wholly a spectator. Care for my own safety led me to be as inconspicuous as possible, for members of communities banded together against the laws of the land in which they live are extremely suspicious of one another, and any inadvertent word may cause disaster to the person speaking it. Perhaps it was this conservatism on my part that caused my advice to be sought after by the inner circle, what you might term the governing body of the anarchists, for, strange as it may appear, this organisation, sworn to put down all law and order, was itself most rigidly governed, with a Russian prince elected as its chairman, a man of striking ability, who nevertheless, I believe, owed his election more to the fact that he was a nobleman 
than to the recognition of his intrinsic worth. And another point which interested me much was that this prince ruled his obstreperous subjects after the fashion of Russian despotism, rather than according to the liberal ideas of the country in which he was domiciled. I have known him more than once ruthlessly overturn the action of the majority, stamp his foot, smite his huge fist on the table, and declare so-and-so should not be done, no matter what the vote was. And the thing was not done, either. At the more recent period of which I speak, the chairmanship of the London anarchists was held by a weak, vacillating man, and the mob had got somewhat out of hand. In the crisis that confronted us, I yearned for the firm fist and dominant boot of the uncompromising Russian. I spoke only once during this time, and assured my listeners that they had nothing to fear from the coming friendship of the two nations. I said the Englishman was so wedded to his grotesque ideas regarding the liberty of the subject, he so worshipped absolute legal evidence, that we would never find our comrades disappear mysteriously from England, as had been the case in continental countries. Although restless during the exchange of visits between King and President, I believe I could have carried the English phalanx with me, if the international courtesies had ended there. But after it was announced that members of the British Parliament were to meet the members of the French legislature, the Paris circle became alarmed, and when that conference did not end the Entente, but merely paved the way for a meeting of businessmen belonging to the two countries in Paris, the French anarchists sent a delegate over to us who made a wild speech one night, waving continually the red flag. This aroused all our own malcontents to a frenzy. The French speaker practically charged the English contingent with cowardice, said that as they were safe from molestation, they felt no sympathy for their comrades in Paris, at any time liable to summary arrest and the torture of the secret cross-examination. This Anglo-French love-feast must be wafted to the heavens in a halo of dynamite. The Paris anarchists were determined, and although they wished the cooperation of their London brethren, yet if the speaker did not bring back with him assurance of such cooperation, Paris would act on its own initiative. The Russian despot would have made short work of this blood-blinded rhetoric, but alas he was absent, and an overwhelming vote in favour of force was carried and accepted by the trembling chairman. My French confrère took back with him to Paris the unanimous consent of the English comrades to whom he had appealed. All that was asked of the English contingent was that it should arrange for the escape and safe-keeping of the assassin who flung the bomb into the midst of the English visitors, and after the oratorical madman had departed, I, to my horror, was chosen to arrange for the safe transport and future custody of the bomb-thrower. It is not etiquette, in anarchist circles, for any member to decline whatever task is given him by the vote of his comrades. He knows the alternative, which is suicide. If he declines the task and still remains upon earth, the dilemma is solved for him, as the Italian Fellini solved it through the back of my unfortunate helper Brisson. I therefore accepted the unwelcome office in silence, and received from the treasurer the money necessary for carrying out the same. I realised for the first time since joining the Anarchist Association years before that I was in genuine danger. A single false step, 
a single inadvertent word might close the career of Eugene Valmont, and at the same moment terminate the existence of the quiet, inoffensive Paul Ducharme, teacher of the French language. I knew perfectly well I should be followed. The moment I received the money, the French delegate asked when they were to expect me in Paris. He wished to know so that all the resources of their organization might be placed at my disposal. I replied calmly enough that I could not state definitely on what day I should leave England. There was plenty of time, as the businessmen's representatives from London would not reach Paris for another two weeks. I was well known to the majority of the Paris organization, and would present myself before them on the first night of my arrival. The Paris delegate exhibited all the energy of a new recruit, and he seemed dissatisfied with my vagueness, but I went on without heeding his displeasure. He was not personally known to me, nor I to him, but if I may say so, Paul Ducharme was well thought of by all the rest of those present. I had learned a great lesson during the episode of the Queen's Necklace, which resulted in my dismissal by the French government. I had learned that if you expect pursuit, it is always well to leave a clue for the pursuer to follow. Therefore I continued in a low, conversational tone. I shall want the whole of tomorrow for myself. I must notify my pupils of my absence. Even if my pupils leave me, it will not so much matter. I can probably get others. But what does matter is my secretarial work with Monsieur Valmont of the Imperial Flats. I am just finishing for him the translation of a volume from French into English, and tomorrow I can complete the work and get his permission to leave for a fortnight. This man, who is a compatriot of my own, has given me employment ever since I came to London. From him I have received the bulk of my income, and if it had not been for his patronage, I do not know what I should have done. I not only have no desire to offend him, but I wish the secretarial work to continue when I return to London. There was a murmur of approval at this. It was generally recognised that a man's living should not be interfered with, if possible. Anarchists are not poverty-stricken individuals, as most people think, for many of them hold excellent situations, some occupying positions of great trust, which is rarely betrayed. It is recognised that a man's duty, not only to himself but to the organisation, is to make all the money he can, and thus not be liable to fall back on the relief fund. This frank admission of my dependence on Valmont made it all the more impossible that anyone there listening should suspect that it was Valmont himself who was addressing the conclave. "'You will then take the night train to-morrow for Paris?' persisted the inquisitive French delegate. "'Yes, and no.' I shall take the night train, and it shall be for Paris, but not from Charing Cross, Victoria, or Waterloo. I shall travel on the 8.30 Continental Express from Liverpool Street to Harwich, cross to the Hook of Holland, and from there make my way to Paris through Holland and Belgium. I wish to investigate that route as a possible path for our comrade to escape. After the blow is struck, Calais, Boulogne, Dieppe, and Havre will be closely watched. I shall perhaps bring him to London by way of Antwerp and the Hook. These amiable disclosures were so fully in keeping with Paul Ducharme's reputation for candour and caution that I saw they made an excellent impression on my audience. And here the chairman intervened, 
putting an end to further cross-examination by saying they all had the utmost confidence in the judgment of Monsieur Paul Ducharme, and the Paris delegate might advise his friends to be on the lookout for the London representative within the next three or four days. I left the meeting, and went directly to my room in Soho, without even taking the trouble to observe whether I was watched or not. There I stayed all night, and in the morning quitted Soho as Ducharme, with a grey beard and bowed shoulders, walked west to the Imperial Flats, took the lift to the top, and, seeing the corridor was clear, let myself in to my own flat. I departed from my flat promptly at six o'clock again as Paul Ducharme, carrying this time a bundle done up in brown paper under my arm, and proceeded directly to my room in Soho. Later I took a bus, still carrying my brown paper parcel, and reached Liverpool Street in ample time for the Continental train. By a little private arrangement with the guard, I secured a compartment for myself, although up to the moment the train left the station I could not be sure but that I might be compelled to take the trip to the Hook of Holland after all. If anyone had insisted on coming into my compartment, I should have crossed the North Sea that night. I knew I should be followed from Soho to the station, and that probably the spy would go as far as Harwich and see me on the boat. It was doubtful if he would cross. I had chosen this route for the reason that we have no organisation in Holland. The nearest circle is in Brussels, and if there had been time, the Brussels circle would have been warned to keep an eye on me. There was, however, no time for a letter, and anarchists never use the telegraph, especially so far as the continent is concerned, unless in cases of the greatest emergency. If they telegraphed my description to Brussels, the chances were it would not be an anarchist to watch my landing, but a member of the Belgian police force. The 8.30 Continental Express does not stop between Liverpool Street and Parkston Quay, which it is timed to reach three minutes before ten. This gave me an hour and a half in which to change my apparel. The garments of the poor old professor I rolled up into a ball one by one, and flung out through the open window, far into the marsh past which we were flying in a pitch-dark night. Coat, trousers, and waistcoat rested in separate swamps at least ten miles apart. Grey whiskers and grey wig I tore into little pieces and dropped the bits out of the open window. I had taken the precaution to secure a compartment in the front of the train, and when it came to rest at Parkston Quay Station, the crowd, eager for the steamer, rushed past me, and I stepped out into the midst of it, a dapper, well-dressed young man with black beard and moustaches, my own closely-cropped black hair covered by a new bowler hat. Anyone looking for Paul Ducharme would have paid small attention to me, and to any friend of Valmont's I was equally unrecognisable. I strolled in leisurely manner to the Great Eastern Hotel on the quay, and asked the clerk if a portmanteau addressed to Mr. John Wilkins had arrived that day from London. He said yes, whereupon I secured a room for the night, as the last train had already left for the metropolis. Next morning, Mr. John Wilkins, accompanied by a brand-new and rather expensive portmanteau, took the 8.57 train for Liverpool Street, where he arrived at half-past ten, stepped into a cab, and drove to the Savoy restaurant, lunching there with the portmanteau deposited in the cloakroom. When John Wilkins had finished an excellent lunch in a leisurely manner at the Café Parisien of the Savoy, 
and had paid his bill, he did not go out into the strand over the rubber-paved court by which he had entered, but went through the hotel and down the stairs, and so out into the thoroughfare facing the embankment. Then, turning to his right, he reached the embankment entrance of the Hotel Cecil. This leads into a long, dark corridor, at the end of which the lift may be rung for. It does not come lower than the floor above, unless specially summoned. In this dark corridor, which was empty, John Wilkins took off the black beard and moustache, hid it in the inside pocket of his coat, and there went up into the lift a few moments later to the office floor, I, Eugène Valmont, myself, for the first time in several days. Even then I did not take a cab to my flat, but passed under the arched strand front of the Cecil in a cab, bound for the residence of that nobleman who had formerly engaged me to see after the safety of the king. You will say that this was all very elaborate precaution to take when a man was not even sure he was followed. To tell you the truth, I do not know to this day whether anyone watched me or not, nor do I care. I live in the present. When once the past is done with, it ceases to exist for me. It is quite possible, nay, entirely probable, that no one tracked me farther than Liverpool Street Station the night before. Yet it was for lack of such precaution that my assistant Brisson received the Italian's dagger under his shoulder-blade fifteen years before. The present moment is ever the critical time. The future is merely for intelligent forethought. It was to prepare for the future that I was now in a cab on the way to my lord's residence. It was not the French anarchists, I feared, during the contest in which I was about to become engaged, but the Paris police. I knew French officialdom too well not to understand the futility of going to the authorities there and proclaiming my object. If I ventured to approach the chief of police with the information that I, in London, had discovered what it was his business in Paris to know, my reception would be far from cordial, even though, or rather because, I announced myself as Eugène Valmont. The exploits of Eugène had become part of the legends of Paris, and these legends were extremely distasteful to those men in power. My doings have frequently been made the subject of feuilletons in the columns of the Paris press, and were, of course, exaggerated by the imagination of the writers, yet nevertheless I admit I did some good strokes of detection during my service with the French government. It is but natural, then, that the present authorities should listen with some impatience when the name of Eugène Valmont is mentioned. I recognise this as quite in the order of things to be expected, and am honest enough to confess that in my old time I often hearkened to narratives regarding the performances of Lecoq with the doubting shrug of the shoulders. Now, if the French police knew anything of this anarchist plot, which was quite within the bounds of possibility, and if I were in surreptitious communication with the anarchists, more especially with the man who was to fling the bomb, there was every chance I might find myself in the grip of French justice. I must then provide myself with credentials to show that I was acting not against the peace and quiet of my country, but on the side of law and order. I therefore wished to get from the nobleman a commission in writing similar to that command which he had placed upon me during the King's visit. This commission I should lodge at my bank in Paris, to be a voucher for me at the last extremity. I had no doubt his lordship would empower me to act in this instance as I had acted on two former occasions. 
Perhaps, if I had not lunched so well, I might have approached his lordship with greater deference than was the case. But when ordering lunch, I permitted a bottle of Chateau de Tête, 1878, a most delicious claret, to be decanted carefully for my delectation at the table, and this caused a genial glow to permeate throughout my system, inducing a mental optimism which left me ready to salute the greatest of earth on a plane of absolute equality. Besides, after all, I am the citizen of a republic. The nobleman received me with frigid correctness, implying disapproval of my unauthorised visit, rather than expressing it. Our interview was extremely brief. "'I had the felicity of serving your lordship upon two occasions,' I began. "'They are well within my recollection,' he interrupted. "'But I do not remember sending for you a third time. "'I have taken the liberty of coming unrequested, my lord, "'because of the importance of the news I carry. "'I surmise that you are interested in the promotion of friendship "'between France and England.' "'Your surmise, sir, is incorrect. "'I care not a button about it. "'My only anxiety was for the safety of the king. "'Even the superb claret was not enough to fortify me "'against words so harsh and tones so discourteous "'as those his lordship permitted himself to use. "'Sir,' said I, dropping the title in my rising anger, "'it may interest you to know that a number of your countrymen "'run the risk of being blown to eternity by an anarchist bomb "'in less than two weeks from to-day.' A party of businessmen, true representatives of a class to which the pre-eminence of your empire is due, are about to proceed— Pray spare me, interpolated his lordship wearily. I have read that sort of thing so often in the newspapers. If all these estimable city men are blown up, the empire would doubtless miss them, as you hint, but I should not, and their fate does not interest me in the least, although you did me the credit of believing that it would— "'Thompson, will you show this person out? "'Sir, if I desire your presence here in future, I will send for you.' "'You may send for the devil,' I cried, now thoroughly enraged, the wine getting the better of me. "'You express my meaning more tersely than I cared to do,' he replied, coldly. "'And that was the last I ever saw of him.' Entering the cab, I now drove to my flat, indignant at the reception I had met with. However, I knew the English people too well to malign them for the action of one of their number, and resentment never dwells long with me. Arriving at my rooms, I looked through the newspapers to learn all I could of the proposed businessmen's excursion to Paris, and in reading the names of those most prominent in carrying out the necessary arrangements, I came across that of W. Raymond White, which caused me to sit back in my chair and wrinkle my brow in an endeavour to stir my memory. Unless I was much mistaken, I had been so happy as to oblige this gentleman some dozen or thirteen years before. As I remembered him, he was a businessman who engaged in large transactions with France, dealing especially in Lyon and that district. His address was given in the newspaper as Old Change, so at once I resolved to see him. Although I could not recall the details of our previous meeting, if indeed he should turn out to be the same person, yet the mere sight of the name had produced a mental pleasure, as a chance chord struck may bring a grateful harmony to the mind. I determined to get my credentials from Mr. White, if possible, 
for his recommendation would in truth be much more valuable than that of the gruff old nobleman to whom I had first applied, because, if I got into trouble with the police of Paris, I was well enough acquainted with the natural politeness of the authorities to know that a letter from one of the city's guests would secure my instant release. I took a hansom to the head of that narrow thoroughfare known as Old Change, and there dismissed my cab. I was so fortunate as to recognise Mr. White coming out of his office. A moment later, and I should have missed him. "'Mr. White,' I accosted him, "'I desire to enjoy both the pleasure and the honour of introducing myself to you.' "'Monsieur,' replied Mr. White, with a smile, "'the introduction is not necessary, and the pleasure and honour are mine. Unless I am very much mistaken, this is Monsieur Valmont, of Paris.' "'Late of Paris,' I corrected. "'Are you no longer in government service, then?' "'For a little more than ten years I have been a resident of London.' "'What, and have never let me know?' "'That is something the diplomatists call an unfriendly act, monsieur. "'Now, shall we return to my office, or go to a café?' "'To your office, if you please, Mr. White. "'I come on rather important business.' "'Entering his private office, the merchant closed the door, "'offered me a chair, and sat down himself by his desk. From the first he had addressed me in French, which he spoke with an accent so pure that it did my lonesome heart good to hear it. "'I called upon you half a dozen years ago,' he went on, "'when I was over in Paris on a festive occasion, where I hoped to secure your company. But I could not learn definitely whether you were still with the government or not.' "'It is the way of the French officialism,' I replied. "'If they knew my whereabouts they would keep the knowledge to themselves.' "'Well, if you have been ten years in London, Monsieur Valmont, "'we may now perhaps have the pleasure of claiming you as an Englishman. "'So I beg you will accompany us on another festive occasion to Paris next week. "'Perhaps you have seen that a number of us are going over there to make the welkin ring. "'Yes, I have read all about the businessman's excursion to Paris, "'and it is with reference to this journey that I wish to consult you. "'And here... I gave Mr. White in detail the plot of the anarchists against the growing cordiality of the two countries. The merchant listened quietly without interruption until I had finished. Then he said, I suppose it will be rather useless to inform the police of Paris. Indeed, Mr. White, it is the police of Paris I fear more than the anarchists. They would resent information coming to them from the outside, especially from an ex-official the inference being that they were not up to their own duties. Friction and delay would ensue until the deed was inevitable. It is quite on the cards that the police of Paris may have some inkling of the plot, and in that case, just before the event, they are reasonably certain to arrest the wrong men. I shall be moving about Paris, not as Eugène Valmont, but as Paul Ducharme, the anarchist. Therefore, there is some danger that as a stranger and a suspect— I may be laid by the heels at the critical moment. If you would be so good as to furnish me with credentials, which I can deposit somewhere in Paris in case of need, I may thus be able to convince the authorities that they have taken the wrong man. Mr. White, entirely unperturbed by the prospect of having a bomb thrown at him within two weeks, calmly wrote several documents, then turned his untroubled face to me and said in a very confidential winning tone, Monsieur Valmont, you have stated the case with that clear comprehensiveness pertaining to a nation which understands the meaning of words and the correct adjustment of them, that felicity of language 
which has given France the first place in the literature of nations. Consequently, I think I see very clearly the delicacies of the situation. We may expect hindrances rather than help from officials on either side of the channel. Secrecy is essential to success. Have you spoken of this to anyone but me? Only to Lord Blank, I replied, and now I deeply regret having made a confidant of him. That does not in the least matter, said Mr. White with a smile. Lord Blank's mind is entirely occupied by his own greatness. Chemists tell me that you cannot add a new ingredient to a saturated solution. Therefore your revelation will have made no impression upon his lordship's intellect. He has already forgotten all about it. Am I right in supposing that everything hinges on the man who is to throw the bomb? Quite right, sir. He may be venal. He may be traitorous. He may be a coward. He may be revengeful. He may be a drunkard. Before I am in conversation with him for ten minutes, I shall know what his weak spot is. It is upon that spot I must act, and my action must be delayed till the very last moment, for if he disappears too long before the event, his first, second, or third substitute will instantly step into his place. Precisely. So you cannot complete your plans until you have met this man. Parfaitement. Then I propose, continued Mr. White, that we take no one into our confidence. In a case like this there is little use in going before a committee. I can see that you do not need any advice, and my own part shall be to remain in the background, content to support the most competent man that could have been chosen to grapple with a very difficult crisis. I bowed profoundly. There was a compliment in his glance as well as in his words. Never before had I met so charming a man. Here, he continued, handing me one of the papers he had written, is a letter to whom it may concern, appointing you my agent for the next three weeks, and holding myself responsible for all you see fit to do. Here, he went on, passing to me a second sheet, is a letter of introduction to Monsieur Largent, the manager of my bank in Paris, a man well known and highly respected in all circles, both official and commercial. I suggest that you introduce yourself to him, and he will hold himself in readiness to respond to any call you may make, night or day. I assure you that his mere presence before the authorities will at once remove any ordinary difficulty. And now, he added, taking in hand the third slip of paper, speaking with some hesitation and choosing his words with care, I come to a point which cannot be ignored. Money is a magician's wand, which, like faith, will remove mountains. It may also remove an anarchist hovering about the route of a businessman's procession. He now handed to me what I saw was a draft on Paris for a thousand pounds. I assure you, monsieur, I protested, covered with confusion, that no thought of money was in my mind when I took the liberty of presenting myself to you. I have already received more than I could have expected in the generous confidence you are good enough to repose in me, as exhibited by these credentials, and especially the letter to your banker. Thanks to the generosity of your countrymen, Mr. White, of which you are a most notable example, I am in no need of money. Monsieur Valmont, I am delighted to hear that you have got on well amongst us. This money is for two purposes. First, you will use what you need. I know Paris very well, monsieur, and have never found gold an embarrassment there. The second purpose is this. 
I suggest that when you present the letter of introduction to Monsieur Largent, you will casually place this amount to your account in his bank. He will thus see that besides writing you a letter of introduction, I transfer a certain amount of my own balance to your credit. That will do you no harm with him, I assure you. And now, Monsieur Valmont, it only remains for me to thank you for the opportunity you have given me, and to assure you that I shall march from the Gare du Nord without a tremor, knowing the outcome is in such capable custody. And then this estimable man shook hands with me, in action the most cordial. I walked away from old change as if I trod upon air, a feeling vastly different from that with which I departed from the residence of the old nobleman in the West End, but a few hours before. End of chapter 2, part 1